You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Alexander Clifford to discuss the international brigades which would be such an important part of the Spanish Civil War. These groups of international volunteers would bolster the Republican cause, both from a public relations perspective as well as on the battlefields of Spain. We discussed why these individuals chose to go to Spain, what they experienced during their time fighting in the war, and their view of the war when it was all over. I would also like to encourage everyone to head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash interviews to find out more information about all of the people that have interviewed for this interview series, as well as links to certain books that they've written, like Alexander Clifford's books on the International Brigades. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm here with Alexander Clifford, the author of Fighting for Spain, the International Brigades in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939, and one of the hosts of the History's Most podcast. Uh, Alexander, how's it going today? Good. I'm delighted to be on here. Thanks, Wesley. Excellent. Thank you for joining me here. Um, so today, we're going to talk about the International Brigades uh, sort of do kind of a deep dive into what those were and, and what was happening with them. And so I'll just start with with a kind of an overview question. How did the international brigades get started? Why did the fight in Spain garner such emotions in people around the world that would cause them to make a, a pretty big commitment of going to Spain and fighting? Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's kind of two questions there, isn't it? It's, it's why did people want to go and how did this all get set up and started? Um, so on the, on the why people wanted to go, I think, you know, the 1930s is a really, it's an age of extremes, you know, that's a common saying about it, isn't it? And you have political extremes, you obviously have economic hardship. And it's a time when these ideas of, you know, fascism, communism, that sort of thing, are really gaining traction, really around the Western world, and particularly, obviously, in Europe. Um, and what seemed to be happening in Spain, the perception, I would say, of what was happening in Spain, whether or not it was entirely accurate, the perception outside of Spain was that what was happening in this civil war was the great debates of the age, you know, fascism versus communism, democracy versus dictatorship, were being played out, you know, in literally being played out in combat on Spanish soil. And so if you had a kind of horse in that race, so to speak, that was where you wanted to go. That was where you wanted to um, 
kind of express your support for one side or, or indeed the other. Um, and whether you went or whether you kind of expressed that support um, through your writings, a lot of intellectuals, for example, through their art or writing, express support for the Republic. Um, I wanted to, if you don't mind, a quote I think really sums up the fact that that these these, these motivations, because I think one thing that even though, you know, notwithstanding what I've just said, um, when you make a big decision in your life, it's not usually for one reason. There's usually lots of factors all play a part and, and reach that, that big decision. So this is um, a letter from an American volunteer called James Lardner, and he wrote it to his mother, who didn't know he was going, and he wrote it once he got there. So a good she didn't do anything about it. Um, and he said this, because I believe that fascism is wrong and must be exterminated, and that liberal democracy, or more probably communism, is right, because my joining the International Brigade might have an effect on the Neutrality Act in the United States, because after the war is over, I shall be a more effective anti-fascist, because in my ambitious quest for knowledge in all fields, I cannot afford in this age to overlook war, because I'm mentally lazy and should like to do some physical work for a change, <laughs> because I need something remarkable in my background to make up for an unfortunate self-consciousness in social relations. So I think that's a quote I like to use because it's basically every aspect, the young men wanting to go on adventure, the, the good cause, the anti-fascism, the um, belief in democracy or even communism. And so, you know, you can pick and choose for any individual volunteer what ratio of those different causes made them want to go. As far as, as how this actually got set up, um, you had some volunteers going really in the summer, July, August of 1936, when war broke out. Um, a few hundred, maybe about a thousand maximum during that time period and joining the myriad political militias that were set up in the Republican side. But in September 1936, the Comintern, the Communist International in Moscow, decided that they would found an international brigade, both to take advantage of this, um, you know, clarion call to the world left and they wanted to be really at the forefront of it and also to give volunteers who maybe didn't have the economic and cultural capital to get to Spain um, a route that would be organized by the Comintern. Um, so they initially thought about 5,000 volunteers ended up being well over 30,000. Wow so in terms of actually getting to Spain, this was something that was organized by the Comintern to actually make sure people could get transport to Spain? Precisely, yeah. Um, what happened was the Comintern, you know, in Moscow was the International Communist Party in the sense it was coordinating the actions of each national communist party in each nation around the world. And they basically told the communist parties around the world, recruit people for the international brigades, and organize their transportation. It was to, to France, actually, to Paris, that they had to get them to. And now the Comintern and the French Communist Party would then organize them in Paris, get kind of big groups, and get them to Spain across the frontier. So if you were in Britain, for example, you would go to your local Communist Party branch, say, I'd like to join the International Brigade. You'd go down to the headquarters in London. They'd interview you. And then if, you know, they thought at first they wanted people with military experience, but that, as time went on, went by the wayside. But if, if you kind of passed, if you like, they would basically get your tickets to get to France. Um, 
Equally, you know, if you're further away, say in the United States, you had to go to New York where the Communist Party headquarters was. And again, they would organize your tickets, you know, to get a ship across the Atlantic. And it was supposed to be clandestine, you know, because in many countries, Britain and the United States, it was illegal. Um, but in reality, there probably wasn't that much really put in place to stop them. Once you got to Paris, um, you would be taken down to the frontier, the Pyrenees, and smuggled across um, by guides across the mountains. Or some volunteers actually went down to Marseille in southern France and took a boat. And so, so you mentioned that it, that it was illegal for some of these people to, I guess, be doing what they're doing. Uh, it, was it often the case that it, that was more of a, like, technically illegal, but eh, we're, we don't really care too much. We just need to be able to claim to other countries that, you know, we're not letting people do this? Yeah, I think that was the main thing. It was more face-saving. Um, no, there was no real interest in um, the governments of, say, Britain or the United States of expending a lot of resources in stopping, you know, reds going off and dying somewhere else. That's, that's all right with us. Um, Exporting them was seen as probably good in some yeah, circumstances. Yeah, and it's not, you know, the only time in history where regimes have thought mm, extremists going abroad actually that'd be quite good for us um <laughs> and look there is accounts that i've read from british volunteers that they you know they could see the secret policemen get on the same train carriage as them go down to the coast get on the same ferry as them follow them across but they didn't try and stop them or arrest them the only kind of negative consequence i suppose would be particularly in america um, the fact that they'd broken the law and if they were known to the authorities is that when you got to the 1950s and McCarthyism, then that can be used against you in that, yes, you did break the law and you went to fight for a what was seen as a communist power. Um, in terms of actually getting across, uh, there was French border patrols, but again, you know, uh, I haven't really come across that much um, accounts of people being arrested or turned away. Finally, I would say that people who went by boat, um, there was a slight risk because I know of at least one occasion where a ship with international volunteers coming from Marseille to Barcelona was torpedoed by either the nationalists or their, their Italian allies. So that actually would probably be the most risky way of going. So when these volunteers get to Spain, um, was there any disillusionment about what was actually happening in Spain? Because it seems very possible to me that sort of the idea of traveling to another country and fighting the good fight against fascism was different than the actual reality of doing so in Spain. Of course, yeah. Um, I would say disillusionment didn't start straight away. Um, it came as a result of, you know, military defeats and casualties. Um, so if you're an international brigade volunteer, despite obviously the, the image um, that I think is associated with it, I, I would say it's a pretty negative experience in the sense of you are fighting a lot of very intense battles and losing nine times out of 10 and suffering very heavy casualties. So um, the first international units go into action in November 1936, very intense battle around Madrid. There's more battles are thrown into in December that year than January and February of 1937. They used in a big operation in March 1937. They used in small operations in 
May and June 37, they're used in major offensives in July and August, I could go on. Basically, there's no respite. They are thrown into the heart of the fire time and again, and the casualty rates are obscene. Um, and, and they often are for troops used in that way, shock troop units. You know, if, you read, if your listeners are familiar with you know, military history, you could look at Australian and Canadian units in World War One. You could look at um, shock troops used in the Red Army. You could look at Waffen-SS. They suffer massive casualties time and again. And as a result, there's a growing sense of disillusionment and demoralization because people don't like losing battles and people don't like seeing their friends being killed. Um, and people don't like fighting for a lost cause either, do they? Um, and there's very much also a sense that because they were volunteers, um, I think definitely by mid-1937, people who've been there about six months, gone through hell, kind of feel like, well, we've done our bit. We have come of our own fleet free will and fought, you know, hard and we'd quite like to go home. But of course, you know, as is the case in any army, you can volunteer in, but you can't volunteer out. You know, if you volunteer for the British Army in World War One or World War Two, you can't suddenly after six months go, yeah, it's been pretty rough. <laughs> I'd like to go now. I, I don't like trenches. I'd like to go home. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think the international brigades get quite a lot of stick um, from historians. Well, maybe not necessarily the historians of them, but in the sense of, oh, well, these brave volunteers and how cruel it was. Well, what, what really can you do? Um, you can't let people leave your army whenever you like. That isn't. That, that just simply isn't going to work. And it was also very difficult for home leave because I've just said it was a legal journey. You know, you can't really send them back and go, oh, well, come back in three days. Um, so it was a pretty grim experience. And the discipline system was, you know, was harsh. I wouldn't say it was, um, some people say it was kind of like an extension of the Stalinist terrors. I think that's going way too far. For one thing, we've never found any kind of, mass graves of international brigaders executed or anything like that. But people were shot for cowardice. People who were serial deserters were shot. Um, and much more common, you know, would be if you were a deserter being put in a prison or in a labor battalion for some weeks, which obviously was not a nice experience either. Um, so without doubt, you know, there is demoralization and it's, mainly, as I, I would argue, as a result of military factors of fighting and dying in very large numbers. You mentioned that there's, there's several thousand that, that sort of make this journey. Was it like a continuous stream? So like, were there units where there were these, these people who had been through some, some stuff, and then there are new sort of idealistic volunteers coming in, and, and that there was like a clash of ideals or anything? That's a, that's a really great question. You get the biggest glut is in the kind of autumn winter of 1936 into 37. And you can understand why, because if the Spanish Civil War breaks out in 1936 and you're moved enough to want to fight there, then you probably go in that time period, right? Um, and over time, the influx of volunteers gets gradually less and less and less, because if you wanted to go, you're not going to go two years into the war for the most part you're probably going to go near the start. There's a couple of things happen. Um, 
There's some evidence, certainly I'm most familiar with the, with the British, and there's some evidence that British Communist Party branches began to have pressure put on them to say to eligible members, you know, oh, it would be good if you, you volunteered as well to go to Spain. By the time we're getting desperate for manpower. You would have to counter that, though, against the fact that actually some Communist Party members were barred from going because they were thought of as too valuable for homework. You know, they couldn't be lost in Spain. We need you here for organizing or, or whatever. The other thing that they have to do, um, and you're right, there's a great book by Alva Bessie, who was there. He later became a Hollywood screenwriter. Um, who He arrives in 1938, so he's one of the last volunteers, and he can't believe the state of the people have been the old sweats, you know, who are dirty and ragged and who he says in these first conversations with them, he thinks that it's basically um, treason what they're saying. Um, but it's kind of the grumblings of, of tired soldiers. Um, but the other thing they have to do in the international brigades, because the flow of volunteers gradually gets less and less and less, is that, and this is often overlooked, Spaniards, mostly conscripts, um, but some Spanish volunteers um, are used to fill up the ranks of the international brigades. And by late 1937, they are majority Spanish units with a core of hardened international veterans and veterans in NCO and officer positions. But, um, you know, from the second half of 37 onwards, and particularly in 1938, the international brigades are foreign-led, really, units with a core of foreign veterans, but actually a majority Spanish conscripts. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For the people who went to Spain, you mentioned earlier that at the beginning, at least, they, they wanted people with military experience for obvious reasons. Uh, over the course of the war, do we have any idea what kind of a, a percentage or estimate of how many people had military experience and how many just 
you know, just people that, that didn't? Um, I couldn't put an exact figure on it, but what I would say is it varies widely from country to country. So if you're looking at volunteers from Germany or France, for example, which were both very large um, contributors, if you like, it's, it's pretty high because of those, the recent experiences of those two countries. You have, you know, almost all men of a certain age have been conscripted in the First World War in those countries. Um, you look at the United States, on the other hand, and they had no veterans. They had no one really with military experience because of how few had served in the First World War um, and the relatively small size of the U.S. Army in the interwar years. Um, to the point where, you know, the first commander of the American battalion, um, his military experience is that he spent a couple of summers in his university's officer training corps um, to earn a few dollars on the side. And that's it. And he's in command of a battalion. Um, what I would say is that officers in the international brigades, the people picked for command, um, always had military experience, pretty much. Um, at the start, they were a mixture of um, Red Army officers who were foreign. They were not Russians, if you see what I'm saying, um, which you had kind of leftovers from the Russian Civil War. And then you had people, like I've said, who were, you know, Germans, French, British, whatever, who've got some sort of military experience, whether they were officers in the First World War, or maybe enlisted men, or maybe they have been the kind of younger generation are people who've maybe been in the armed forces themselves during the interwar period. So um, there was definitely a kind of effort to find, at the very least for command and control roles, people who knew what they were doing. Uh, as the war goes on and, and things, you know, aren't going well, uh, and, and the percentage of Spanish individuals in these units continues to rise, um, are they still used? Because you mentioned that, that these are like shock troops for, for at least the first part of the war. It, it, does that continue even if perhaps the makeup of the units starts to become a lot closer to, I, I guess, like every other unit in the Republican Army? Yeah, it does. Um, and the reason is this. I think there's a lot of, um, I want to say controversy maybe about the role of the international brigades, the combat role. And it has been written that they are kind of just thrown into battles without much training, you know, sacrificed basically like cannon fodder and thrown into battles by Republican commanders, thrown into the toughest spots without real proper support and are sacrificed and wasted away. Um, and that they're used as these shock troops. Now that use obviously has devastating effects, but, but I would caveat it with this. Um, they did have poor training, poor equipment, poor leadership, um, not very much in the way of support. I mean, in terms of artillery, air support, that sort of thing. But that was the case for the entire Republican Army. So there was a flaws with the Republican Army, not with the International Brigade specifically. And in fact, like I've kind of just outlined, you had commanders who often had more experience than you would in a Spanish unit. You had whatever decent quality, you know, firearms that the Republic could get were often given to international units because they were seen as part of, they weren't the only, I would say it's important to emphasize, but they were part of the shock troop units of the Republican army. The reason for that is actually, I think really straightforward and it really 
um, kind of dispels the idea that they would be used as cannon fodder. And, and the point is, is quite simply motivation and morale because they wanted to be there. They had, you know, they obviously really wanted to be there because they'd come across seas and oceans and mountains and, you know, it's quite a big commitment to go, right? The Spanish Republican army was almost um, 90% conscript. About 120,000 Spaniards volunteered to fight the Republic. And you compare that to 30 odd thousand foreign volunteers. That's a really high ratio. That's one in five people who volunteered to fight for the Republic were foreign. Now, in a conscript army, obviously, your listeners will be well familiar, you know, not every conscript wants to fight and die for the cause because they haven't chosen to be there. But that's especially true of a civil war. The motivation to kill your own countrymen is obviously low if you didn't want to do it in the first place. But also, a very significant chunk of the Republic's conscripts actually support the other side. Um, you know, if you are recruiting, it's just the vagaries of geography that you control this region, so you're going to recruit all the young men, and half of them might well be politically probably right-wing, Catholic, and not particularly wanting to fight and die for what they see as red Spain. So, they, they, you know, and I've read diary, quite frank diary, of a, of a Republican conscript who enters a town that's just been occupied by the Republicans, and he says, another victory for Moscow. <laughs> Absolutely not. And when they actually get charged to attack, he openly writes in his diary, I just went and hid. I found, I went and had a, had a hide for about half an hour. <laughs> so to get back to my point, if your army is 90% conscripts and they can't be trusted to fight and die, they can't be trusted to hold a piece of ground or even advance towards an enemy position, then your men who do want to do that are really important and you are going to have to keep using them no matter how tired they are because you can rely on them and brutally you can rely on them to die for you if you want them to if you need them to they will hold a hill for days when another unit would melt away in hours they will charge against a position um, when another unit might not even climb out their trenches you might have a hide for 30 minutes yeah exactly <laughs> So they, kept, they keep getting used for that. And in the final major Republican offensive of the war, the Ebro in summer 38, they used tip of the spear again, even though they are now, you know, between 10 and 30% foreign. And the reason is the same, is that these are your 10 and 30% of people that they rely on, that you can trust to die if you need them to. Um, and what I would say is that despite the demoralization, despite the losses, they do fight very hard and they fight, and Michael Alpert says, at le the very least at the level of the best Spanish units in the Republican Army. Um, they're pretty similar, I'd say, in terms of combat performance. And it's all got to be caveated with the fact the Republican Army isn't very good, <laughs> doesn't have any experience, doesn't have much training. The bar so is pretty low for being yeah. as good as any other unit. I think I've written somewhere, you know, they are not an elite in any 20th century military except this one, <laughs> you know, if all the bar is you want to fight here, then yes, they pass that test. And, you know, like I say, they've got a modicum more training, a modicum more experience, maybe slightly better leaders, slightly better equipment, and much more motivation than your average Republican unit. Therefore, you know, they're not cannon fodder. They're actually some of your most valuable troops. So the, the, the war does not go well 
for the Republican Army, for the International Brigades. And so as the war comes to a close, sort of what happens to those volunteers, many of which probably are not welcome back in their home countries or, or maybe are, you know, could go to jail if they go back or whatever. Uh, and how did they sort of react to, to a failure of, of, a, of a cause that they obviously supported um, mm -hmm. in those early days? I mean, obviously it was, um, you know, a bitter pill to swallow and difficult to take. They were withdrawn about um, six months before the end of the war because they were pretty much a spent force. And also the Republic was trying to diplomatically engineer the Francoists to withdraw their foreign troops as well, which they refused to do. Um, so there wasn't like they were, apart from uh, some volunteers who, who insisted on staying, um, they weren't really there at the very end. On going home, some of them threw themselves into activism for the Spanish Republican cause, which, like I said, continued for another almost six months. It was particularly difficult if you were from a country, particularly a lot of European countries that were under right-wing dictatorships. Um, I mean, the example I always use is Austria, which if you were an Austrian volunteer, um, your country had ceased to exist while you were in Spain, had been annexed by Germany, which must have been a dislocating experience. If you were an Italian, a German, Polish, Yugoslavian, you couldn't go home. So you faced internment in France. You were kept in camps um, by the French. Again, extremists coming across your border. What do we do with them? They kept in camps. Some of the really terrible conditions, you know, just barbed wire on a beach. Um, that was it. Um, and of course, those people then, the fall of France a year later, found themselves in the Nazi concentration camp system which obviously was a pretty grim experience. For those that went back to the more the Western countries like Britain and America, um, there was obviously disappointment and then big disillusionment when you had the Nazi-Soviet pact just a few months later. We've been fighting the fascists and indeed, you know, de facto the Nazis in Spain and now suddenly the Communist Party is peddling the line that actually um, these are our kind of new allies and that the Second World War, when it started, was um, the Communist Party line was it was an imperialist war and not something we should be supporting. We should be opposed to the British war effort um, against Nazi Germany, which obviously was a really, you know, really split British communists, for instance. Um, once Germany attacks the Soviet Union, it all becomes black and white again. And the Communist Party now says, no, yes, we are opposed to Nazi Germany, we are fighting them, we do support the war effort. What you see, unsurprisingly, though, is quite a lot of International Brigade volunteers serving in World War II. Um, particularly, quite a few were used um, by the Americans uh, for um, special operations in Europe, behind the lines, because a lot of the resistance movements behind the lines in France, Italy, elsewhere, Yugoslavia, actually, as well, were communist-led, and so International Brigade veterans were some pretty important. Um, the guy who led the liberation of Paris by the resistance in 1944, um, just as the Allies were arriving, was an International Brigade veteran. On the other hand, you did have a few that suffered from the authorities, and either were barred from serving because of their politics, or were um, not able to get promotions um, and in, in the American services, it was a mark against your name and your permanent record. 
it said premature anti-fascist in that you were anti-fascist too soon in the 30s you were anti-fascist before it was than... cool i guess yeah. <laughs> exactly and obviously then after the second world war a huge range of things that i suppose we can't really get into beyond the remit of this show but but yes a very kind of mixed bag i would say okay uh, what was the you mentioned the the complex relationship i would say between the soviet union and germany immediately mm. after the spanish civil war so what was kind of the, the, the common turns sort of usage of the international brigades from a propaganda perspective, both during the war and after? Uh, I assume like, especially at the beginning, they were like, hey, look at all this awesome stuff happening as we fight fascism in Spain when nobody else will. Uh, Absolutely, you're spot on. During the civil war, the international brigades were, you know, something that the common turn could trumpet as, you know, working class, solidarity in action you know we are saving somebody else's um country from fascism and you know it was really championed in that way um again i think it did become something more than just a propaganda stunt um because of the military role they had and because it actually became much bigger than the common turn had ever intended in terms of the number of people going after uh, the war obviously you have um, this new relationship with Nazi Germany, and so everything's on the down low. We're not supporting anti-fascism anymore because Soviet foreign policy had changed from being collective security. We want to form an anti-fascist alliance. Primarily, they hoped with France and Britain. That didn't succeed in the mid, late, mid to late 30s. So instead, um, you know, they, they did the Nazi-Soviet pact, which, as I say, had a terrible effect on, on communist parties around the world. And after, I think the interesting thing after the war is that that thing that's been put back in the box is taken out again, and the international brigades are once again heroes in the, in the Soviet bloc, if you like, in Eastern Europe, where, um, you know, you could look at East Germany, for example, and they really celebrated the international brigades as being Germans who were fighting fascism way back in the 30s. Look at the proud example of what German communists did. Um, you know, they were on stamps and things like that. There was, um, you know, you would you probably read about them in school textbooks and things like that. And actually, some international brigade veterans rose to high office in the Soviet bloc. Um, a German, um, Wilhelm Zeiser, would become the minister of security, I think, in East Germany um, for a time. So, like I said, it's kind of like, they were amazing propaganda um, tool, if you like, for the Comintern in the 30s during the Civil War. Then it's all kind of downplayed. And then after the Second World War, they can once again be this, this kind of heroic example. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast to chat with me about this. And this has been a very interesting and enlightening conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Wesley. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.